Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. Larry, there's something out in the woods. And Larry Korea. Get to the chopper! Today's episode, Supporter Spectacular, Round 5. Everybody, welcome back to the Writer Dojo. We're here. We're back. And Casey Azell is going to yell at me for saying chopper. Oh, Casey. We're so sorry, Casey. <laughs> Casey's a professional helicopter To make pilot, it up so. to you, we'll get, we'll get you on the podcast at some point to, ch- to talk about stuff. Um, all right. Today, everybody, we're back. You guys keep sending us wonderful questions. So by you sending us wonderful questions, that means, Larry, it's time for another Supporter Spectacular, baby. Fantastic. And we actually we got some really we good questions. We got some questions. dope questions. Uh, some of these are pretty basic and we'll be able to hit pretty fast. And others are a little more in-depth and we will visit them and we'll probably wind up visiting them again. So, all right. Some of the questions we have, the, the vast majority of them are from supporters. There were a couple that came in that weren't from supporters, but they're freaking awesome. It actually came in through the voicemail system that Anchor has that I honestly didn't quite know it existed very well. And yeah, I we just about found it. that. So no offense if these have been waiting for a while. Now, what we what we might do if people keep sending these in, uh, and and you're and you the listeners are okay with it. Well, by you the listeners, I mean the people who are submitting the questions are okay with it. Once we figure out technology and crap, we'll just like play the question on the air yeah. so that I'm not paraphrasing you. But anyway, so I'm going to actually start with, uh, with a couple pretty quick basic ones. Okay, Larry? So this is from supporter David. Question one. What concerns should we be aware of, including copyright, libel, and slander for using actual companies and people in fiction? Google, Comcast, Glock, mm-hmm. Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm not referring to plagiarism because we all know that's bad course is there text added to a story to avoid legal action now you have some experience in this because of uh because of tom stranger uh yeah so um okay so the basic rules are you can talk about real companies and real people um as long as you don't slander or or violate the like libel and slander laws yeah the uh, basically the idea is if you harm their brand um, things like brand dilution and brand, um, shoot, I just looked this up today. What was it called? Something else, whatever. Idea is if you're talking all sorts of crap about them and accusing them of all sorts of stuff in your fiction, probably a bad call. Like for example, if I was to use like say Taco Bell in a story and had people eat a Taco Bell, that's fine. If I wanted to even like, you know, talk about how they ate a Taco Bell, they didn't like Taco Bell. That's fine too. But if I start talking about like how Taco Bell, you know, puts bleach in the meat. And everyone knows that they're poisonous. And they, and then the characters die from eating Taco Bell. Now that might be skirting a lawsuit. Like, so you talk about Tom Stranger. Uh, what I did with that was because it was pop culture and it was current events. Uh, so every time I've written a Tom Stranger, Audible's lawyers have had to go and read through it. <laughs> and they've had to change stuff, dude. And they've had to change stuff specifically because they're like, uh, this person will sue us for yeah. this. And uh, there's one point I made a joke about a certain movie star in the first one with her scented candles and her medical advice. And I had to change that to a certain movie star because this certain movie star will sue people like crazy, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and then there was another one involving uh, Juicy Smollier. Uh yeah. <laughs> Juicy Smollier, that French actor. The French actor, Juicy Smollier. Who <laughs> Do you turned know up, the reference? Yeah. Oh, so. He was in Murder of Man- so Murder Smollier. of Manatees because they're like, 
hey, we need someone to fake a hate crime. Who's the best person to fake a hate crime? And so he appears as a character. And I had to tone that ser- scene down. Allegedly. So yeah, so actually, because the lawyers wanted me to put allegedly more. And so there's actually this really funny paragraph where I use the word allegedly like nine times in one paragraph, talking about like stuff he clearly did. At the end of the day, it turns out uh, you were writing nonfiction at the time. Yeah, and actually it's funny because I wrote this before <laughs> he was found guilty in a court of law. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, so, so that was one of those, we just had to cover our butt. So I made that funny. So that's basically what it is. That's, those are your rules. You can use real people now for using, if you're using them in a positive light, go nuts, kid. Well, and also there is that, there is that thing at the beginning of the book, uh, on the copyright page where they said all resemblance to people living and dead is hereby accidental or. Yeah, Whatever. This is purely coincidence or that, something. That's, like that. to, that's to cover your butt should you use people's names yeah. uh, in a way that they don't like. Now, uh, tangentially related, you probably shouldn't be quoting lyrics from songs and stuff in your work. That's generally frowned on. Um, uh, you, you have to be pretty careful with that. Also, uh, quoting things that are uh, more modern or like quoting books that are like not out of copyright yeah you know yeah tread carefully with that if you're traditionally published check with your publisher on that and what their rules are if you're self-published be careful of that um as long as you, as long as you don't go nuts or rip people off yeah, yeah i've actually been ripped off and it, it it's 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 but that's getting into the plagiarism that he's talking yeah. about okay we all know that's bad okay question two and this one's this one's super easy but it's actually hyper important and that's after submitting short stories for publication, uh, and I'm assuming, therefore, after they've been published, how do you republish that work as your own anthology later? Do the orig- does the original publisher of your work have legal rights to prevent you from republishing the work? No, that is going to be in your contract when you yep. originally sell it, and it's called the exclusivity period. Uh, and Steve and I have both published collections of our short fiction most of which appeared in other anthologies first. And as long as you're outside the exclusivity period on the contract, uh, you are good to go. Now, I still checked with each of mine individually. I, I emailed every single editor before I compiled Target Rich Environment 1 and 2 just to make sure that I was you know, reading this right and that I was in the clear and not stepping on anybody's toes. Well, heck, you, actually, you even emailed me because one of our... One of our co-authored short stories is in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like, and, and I did the same with Jonathan Mayberry because I had a co-authored story with Jonathan yeah. Mayberry. Uh, so the same thing. I wanted to make sure that I didn't step on anybody's toes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be make sure it was cool with everybody else. That Now, generally, and, and forgive me, I kind of blanked for a sec if you already said this. Um, in most of my contracts, especially those with Bain, uh, it basically says a year. I think a year is pretty standard. I've, I've seen also a, seen two. I've seen a year. I've year seen a year 18, and a half, and yep. I've seen mm-hmm. two. Yeah. Uh, I did see one that said seven years. Ooh, jeez. Uh, and I said no. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I, I'd I said, say no to that. I said the, the most this can be is two years, uh, and, and they, they moved it down. You, Everything in a contract is negotiable. Yeah, you guys would be surprised. If you see something in a contract that just seems extreme to you, there's nothing wrong with questioning that. Uh, last episode, we talked about a little nonfiction. Uh, there's a thing called uh, right of first refusal in uh, publishing where like you write something for a publisher and then you write something again, they get first crack at it. Uh, however, I had to go back to my nonfiction people and say, uh-uh, I'll give you guys first crack at anything nonfiction I write. Yeah, but not blank. But fiction, you got to take that off. 
Yeah, no freaking way. Yeah, no freaking way. And they're like, oh, of course, obviously we didn't think of that. It's because it's just everybody's using a boilerplate contract. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, they use the same contract for everybody. So yeah, that's that's real simple. Just check your contract; it'll tell you what the date is, and don't sign up for anything that's stupid long. Yeah. Well, and and look, like that's actually important, right? Because being able to take these stories, uh, most of the most anthologies you're in, you're only going to get your fee for, like your upfront fee, and that's basically it. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Like, and I've been in like thirty anthologies, and I think I've gotten like royalties two. after for like five. Yeah, for me, it's two, and one of them is Monster Hunter. Both Falls. of them are from you. Oh yeah, thanks. Monster Hunter and Noir Fatale. Yeah, they both earned out and still pay. And so. and you know, and I'm assuming that um, that Noir Fatale three uh, down the, uh, what? down these mean streets. down these mean streets. That's yeah. what we're calling it, right? Yep. I'm assuming that one will will be equally successful. You know, what's actually interesting. It's like I am shockingly financially successful as a editor of uh, <laughs> anthologies. I I was having this conversation at uh, Gen Con, and I was telling a couple people. Because they're they're talking about how terrible anthologies were because mm-hmm. of pay. Yeah, you're saying being the Larry and, and Career I one. And I said, and I said, man, uh, actually, I think it was me, and Maurice. Oh, Maurice knows because yeah, Maurice is in, in that same one. And he he was talking about how there were like when there's six New York Times bestsellers in there. He's like, man, you just do what you can to get in because <laughs> like, that one will actually be successful. And I looked at him, I said. I think that's the same. I said, I think we're talking about the same anthology. He's like, we're talking about the same anthology. <laughs> um, Reese is a stud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good, good. So thank you, David. Two excellent questions. Next question from our boy, supporter, Rick Cutler. Hey, Rick. The evangelist for us. We yeah, love Rick, him. Rick, 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 Rick bangs the drum for Writer Dojo. Rick, dude, I can't swear. We freaking love you. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna redshirt you in a story, Rick. I'm telling you right now. That's cool. Um, so freaking violently. All right. Rick is less of a question; it's more of like a suggestion. But I want to hit it very briefly, and and assure him that we're that we we've we've seen this, we've listened to it, and we're going to we've listened to him, and we're gonna. We, we, you and I already have plans to answer this one with dramatic in dramatic fashion. Okay. And that is. Um, uh, how about a few episodes on how to write a battle in space? Oh, now, yes. You've done this. Just once. You've done this once. Um, have I written any? I did Gunrunner. We have a space battle. I'm trying to think if but I... But not a big one. But however, we do have um, some friends. We We know a few people with very big names. They're very, very good at this. Who have made entire careers out of this and... And, and who have offered to come on the show? Yep, and uh, which uh, is we need to work it out. Now, now here's what I will say. I'm just going to say as kind of a blanket statement. Um, I love the way David Weber handles space battles. Uh, I think he transitions really well from handling the actual fleet movements and making them seem logical in your brain um, to going into the inside of, of say the the bridge or wherever the wherever it is that the main characters are, or in different places around the the ship, and showing because space battles are interesting because there is the battle of the ship between the ship, but then there's like this there's always the sub the best space battles for me there's the sub battles that happen within the framework of that mm-hmm. and that's and that's 
the crews fighting their own ship as damage comes. Oh yeah, you know, and or or fighting each other because one person thinks they know better than the other, and and stuff like. like, you know, I, like I love I love that interplay so on, much. on Basilisk Station. Oh you know, my the, gosh. the the book that made David Weber so good made his career. You know, uh, some of the best parts in there is like there's during the space battle the damage control scenes. Dude, they're so good. They're so good. Yeah. Um, and then another author who I want to shout out, who I, I love his stuff, and that's Jack Campbell, the Lost Fleet series. He does this so well. Now, he his is interesting because he addresses the the concept of 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 the three dimension three dimension the three dimensions of space. I was trying to come up with a better word for that. I can't. I'm a writer or something. But um, so he explains it at once at the very beginning, and he's like, "Look." Human brains don't comprehend that super well. So here's the framework to comprehend it better. And he gives it to you and then he sticks with it the entire time. And it's pretty simple. And so it's pretty easy to see it. Now in his scenes, it's a very similar thing. The ships are passing at such high speeds that it's basically just whoop and they're just going by each other. And it happens in the fraction of a second. And yet he's able to describe the manner, what is happening and all that. And more importantly, what they're doing to get ready for that pass and then what they're doing to, uh, to again, damage control type stuff after the pass has happened. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. We'll definitely revisit this with some guests uh, this oh, yeah. is that, that do this better than we do. Oh, yeah. So thank you, Rick. You're the man. We love you. All right. Here's some of the – let's see. Do we want to take a break first we, and then come back and hit okay, the Okay, we're going to take a we're going to take an early break. We we don't normally do this. We're going to take an, an early break so that we can hit these last ones cuz these last ones are pretty cool questions. Yeah, they're a little more complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, we'll be right back. Give us a sec. Less than a year ago, Tom Ormson, a dragon shifter who also happens to be half owner of the George in downtown Goldport, Colorado, became one of the most powerful magical creatures in the world. This should be great. He's getting married, and his wife, another dragon shifter, is about to deliver their child. Which is when everything comes apart and Tom finds out that being the head of a shifter clan is about as stable as being the king of a small, fractious country. As long-forgotten, semi-legendary dragons and minotaurs and beasties of various descriptions come out of the woodwork, it becomes clear they're ready for a Ragnarok, a time when the heads of clans fall and are replaced. As if that weren't enough, Fury's birth family has surfaced, pitching her into the politics of the Lion Clan. And there was a murder in the parking lot of the George, whose solving just might set the city on fire. Bowl of Red, the fourth book in the Shifter series by Sarah A. Hoyt, is available for pre-order on Amazon. Reserve your copy today. Welcome back to another glorious edition of the supporter spectacular for uh, for the writer Dojo Larry. Okay. These next set of questions, these are going to be the ones that we heard on the voicemail. Uh, some of these, the, the people identified themselves as supporters, so I believe you. Some didn't. I'm just going to assume you are. And if you're not, it's an easy, you can easily rectify this situation. Well, it's pretty sweet. I mean, they're calling the thing on Anchor, so it's probably, they're probably supporters. I would think so. Yeah. Regardless, your questions were too good. So anyway, and the, some of these questions go back several months. Uh, sorry. <laughs> we didn't know this existed. Yeah. Uh, I, I remembered it was there, 
I just happened to be scrolling through all the options on my Anchor app, and I saw the voicemail thing. And I went, oh, yeah, that's a thing. And I clicked, and there were, there were several messages. One of our boys, his name's Ahmed, he asked, so this is a very, like, uh, nuts and bolts question. And, and, and I like to have these very nuts and bolts questions interspersed with all the other ones. So this one is uh, Ahmed was asking specifically about structure. He was asking for structure in terms of like the lengths of paragraphs mm. in terms of sentences and how do you structure sentences for dialogue? Because he, he was talking about how how the structure in fiction for these sorts of things is very different than that of essays. And, and he's absolutely true. In our, in our last episode, we talked about nonfiction versus fiction. And I know, and you know, like the, the, way, the way I write those and the way you write those is different than our fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way you're telling the, the story, so to speak, is different. So, okay. So let's start with lengths of paragraphs. Yeah. Now, my rule of thumb on paragraphs is variable. Yep. I do not want too many paragraphs the same size. Now, the question is how big should the paragraph be? I divide up my paragraphs according to uh, topic. Okay. So rather than size, and unless I have too many that are the same size in a row, most of my paragraphs are going to be like three, four, or maybe six sentences for a long one. Is like a big, big long mm-hmm. one. Most of mine are really two or three. And they're going to be, a, the way I divide them up is like, let's say I have multiple characters in a scene. And I, like I'm writing uh, Son of the Black Sword right now, number four. Yeah, Tower uh, Silence. Tower Silence. And so like if I have, uh, I was doing a, a scene with uh, uh, Rada, Rada and Carno, right? And I would have Rada doing some actions and having some thoughts and having some dialogue. That's one paragraph. But then I don't add any of the Carno actions to that same paragraph, he gets a paragraph, okay? I try not to subject switch within one paragraph. Oh, okay, sure. Unless it is necessary, like a transitory piece of action. Like, so if I say something to you and then you react and I respond to your reaction, that could all be in one paragraph, right? But if I say something to you and then you need to act on your own to come back from what I said, that's getting its own paragraph. Right. And another trick I like to do is like I, I call it like looking for white space. Yep. Yeah. So you do that too. Mm-hmm. It's it's the river effect. So as you're scrolling through your manuscript and it's on the screen, look for big chunks of white. And when I say that is like if your paragraphs are all really short, like dialogue. And it's just like everything is the same size. And so you have like this big white streak down the page. Uh, that's usually a hint to me that I need to vary it up more. Well, and, and I also do the reverse, which is if there is a substantial clump. if there's a substantial lack of white space. Yep. To me, it's funny. Um, it's very almost it, to me, it becomes a visual aesthetic. Yeah, wall of text wall is of text, unappealing. Uh, nope. No, it's super unappealing to me. Yeah, it actually has a psychological effect on the reader too. So if you have a like like four or five dense four or five para- sentence paragraphs in a row and just boom 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 boom. Oh, I I can't do that. Yeah. Like, I, and I've done it before. I mean, shoot, I I did it there there were sections of Servants of War where I did that and and where you did that and, and we edited each other's things to yep. to break it up just naturally. It looks like a textbook when you have that. 
And no one likes textbooks. Yeah, it actually kind of like psychologically, when you see a dense, dense text page like that, it kind of sends a message. It's unwelcoming yeah. to the reader. Now, one of the things that I like to do, so, okay, so Ahmed, so, so think about it this way. You're, you're having all this stuff. You're, you're thinking about the number of sentences in your paragraphs and stuff. And we're telling you, we're giving you some techniques upon just, just for the visualness, just for the ease of readability. The other item I want you to consider, Ahmed, and for all you other listeners who have the same question, is how can you use this to your advantage? Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I, feel like I, I feel like I might have said this on, on one of the previous episodes, but that's I like to use paragraph length and sentence length to artificially change the flow of pacing. This is something that like when I was editing you. Uh, you saw me do this a lot, I right? I saw you do that a lot. And I was, there was a couple of them where. It was too much in a few places. It was obviously. too much in a few places. And other times you were super smooth with it. Yeah. Um, you know who the grand master of that trick is? Huh. Dan Simmons. Oh, yeah. Dan Simmons will do the thing where he'll do ultra dense informational paragraph. Pithy sentence. Yeah. Pithy sentence. Funny joke. Ultra dense. Yeah. You know, he, 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 you don't want to ever like have too much of one thing. It's kind of like when we talk about writing action or uh, pacing where we got the sine wave going up and down. Yeah. Um, sentence structure and paragraph structure is just a more granular, like cellular version of that same yeah. principle. Uh, there's been a couple times where I will intentionally, it's almost like I'm writing a poem. You yeah. know, po- poetry is one of those things where it has rules for some reason. Uh, and I don't do well with rules, Larry. Well, that's the thing. Whereas fiction writers, we can toss a lot of I mean, sentence throw away all rules that crap. out. Yeah. But so, so I'll uh, try to remember what, where I did this, what story I did this in. But I have this, my first paragraph was, was literally five lines. Then the next one was four. Then it's three and two. And then a one-liner. And I did that because not only does it kind of look cool on the page, but it creates this artificial almost time bomb. And I'm setting you up for feeling like that something's happening. Yeah. Like whether you realize it or not, something's going down. And, it, and it's all, all these sentences, they're just slowly or quickly, I guess, coming down to a head of to one big thing. Yep. Now that, that one-liner has to be punchy. Or you've wasted your opportunity. Yeah, because if it's not punchy enough, then, we'll, then what was the what point of doing? the journey? Yeah, yeah, what were you doing? There's one of those, like, we're telling you all this stuff, but like, a lot of this is just you're going to learn by feel with practice. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other thing this the other thing that Ahmed asked was the structure of sentences and dialogue, because they can be a little different than just, like, your expositional stuff. Oh, yeah. Now, what I'll do in dialogue is interesting, too, because remember, I, I, we actually had a whole episode about dialogue, especially yeah. in, like, writing with audiobooks. Biggest weapon I can say for that is read it out loud. Yeah. Um, cause dialogue is very peculiar to the ear mm-hmm. and either it's either going to read natural or it's going to read unnatural. And we, it, actually, Ahmed, I'd recommend go listen to that whole episode. We got a bunch of mm-hmm. advice on there on, on dialogue. And to be honest, I don't know if, I don't know if based on when he sent this question in, <laughs> if, we don't know what if the, that, the, if that episode had already come out by then or not. Yeah. We don't know what the voicemail thinks. Uh, if it, if it didn't come out. By then, Amen. Go listen to that episode. Yeah, try that one. That that hopefully will help. But honestly, the same basic rules apply. Yeah. Uh, you just want to vary it up. If if all your dialogue is the same size, 
if you're starting it with the same the same word every time. Yeah, that's the other trick too is I like to like I said I like to go down the the paragraph looking for I I I yep. he 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 she she she. I'm basically looking for word rivers. Word repetition. Yep, and because word repetition is kind of gross, it like doesn't it doesn't read well. When when you and I give each other stuff to review from from each other, um, we do the same thing. That's one of the very first things we start pointing out is yeah. Oh hey hey word repetition here. You you've said the word, um, indubitably or whatever. Like, yeah. Three different times within two cent within the two word paragraphs. cataclysm shows up three times on this page. Yeah, which was what's we, funny. Is, we literally count this, guys. Yeah, yeah. So this is just a thing you watch for in your editing, uh, and you'll miss it honestly yourself. Oh. This is this is the kind of thing that extra readers catch yeah. because usually you miss it because you're too close, and sometimes you have to use the words over and over again, you know. But but limited. All right, Ahmed, I hope that that. Uh... That answered your question. That's a good question. Good questions, dude. We love it. Um, I'm just writing a note down to myself so that I don't forget to say something. A, give me a second, listeners. Jeez, so demanding. Um, all right. Sorry, I'm on a lot of caffeine right now. All right, here we go. Uh, Evan asked us, how do you write about violence without glorifying it? especially when that violence is directed towards the younger than innocent. Mm. It's a great, great freaking question. That really is. I think that's going to be so audience dependent. Yeah. And genre dependent on how you tackle that. Okay, let, let's talk about, um, there's a scene in, it's like, I think it's chapter two or three of Servants of War. It's the first Kristoff scene. Oh, with where he, oh yeah, Kristoff's, yeah, it's, if you haven't read service, when your introduction to Kristoff, he does some pretty horrible, some horrible stuff. Things. He does some horrible things to one individual that just randomly shows up. Who didn't really deserve it. Oh no, of course not. Yeah. That's why Kristoff's awesome. So, uh, in the initial draft, the person that shows up in that scene is a kid. Yeah. It's he like was, a, he was younger. like a, like a, like a page or like a, like an altar boy sort of a thing. Yeah. That's the vibe I was going. I mean, it's kind of sort of almost Catholic. And so I was going for the altar boy vibe. Yeah, they're kind of a pseudo-Orthodox. Yeah. And uh, in that original text, I had the boy, it was a boy coming in. And Christoph is a, is a jerk face. And he has his, his minion, uh, Vasily, just murder the ever-living crap out of him. In the final version, you'll notice that that character is, is, is older. And again, I'm a horror guy. So I approached it at the, at the level of what is going to be the worst possible thing that can happen at this moment. And so the, the kind of the altar boy coming in was the worst version. And, your, and I think your phrase to me was, or your, your feedback to me on that before we, we switched it to, um, he was just like an assistant priest or something yeah, like so that. Yeah, so somebody a little older. Yeah, yeah. a little bit older. Yeah, you know, a, a young adult. A young adult. Like, yeah. I think he was 18 or something like that. Uh you said, "Hey, look, dude. Remember, remember. I need my re- my readers need a little hope, Steve. Stop, stop trying to be all nihilistic on me, buddy. Um, and but we were doing exactly that. We were thinking of who our readers were. Yeah, it's a question of tuning. Yeah. Um, so there are some things when you're going to write it where you will want to maximize that. In the same book." All the, ga- the the gas scene, 
Dude, we pulled no freaking punches. Yeah, we in pulled that no scene. punches in those. No, those but scenes also, are violent as heck. But also, at that point, we were far enough into the book too that people were committed, and they also knew what they were getting into. Oh yeah, I'm, we we'd made the promises earlier that that yeah. super bad, terrible gas violence was coming. Well, and, and if we and if we would have pulled back on that, it would not have been authentic. It would to have the been authentic at that point. Now, what this what he specifically said, he's like, "How do you not glorify the violence?" Yeah. I think that's going to also depend on what you're writing because some things. You just embrace the over-the-topness of it, uh, and that's part of the story. Yeah. Like, like, like the snow-cutter scene in Monster Hunter uh, Alpha uh, is just incredibly over-the-top gory. It's so violent. It's so violent. It's, re- <laughs> it's ridiculously violent. But on that one, I, went, I embraced it, and I went whole hog with it, and, and that's what it was. And I would think, like we've talked about, if you're writing you know, Sparkle Princess Adventure you know, I, I was yeah, I was talking with some people about that at the show. Yeah, <laughs> at Gen Con, and they were very excited for me to write something. Yeah, Steve, Steve's doing Sparkle Princess Adventure. What is it, Battle Planet? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I call. I think her exact name is going to be Princess Sparkle Gore. <laughs> so on on not glorifying the violence. That's an interesting one because if you're writing like say true crime, or or Bosch. You know, or, or you, you police procedure. You cannot shy away from the violence, especially yeah. into his, into Evan's specific question towards the young or the innocent. You cannot, you cannot shy away from showing how violent that stuff is. However, I think the thing that saves it is the point of view from which you're telling the scene. Yeah. Um, in many of these cases, especially the most violent. Uh, you know, the, the most vile crimes that you're seeing in some of these things. Uh, I, I'm thinking of se- uh, I'm thinking of season, I think it's three of Bosch with the, the ex-military dudes that are stealing oh, yeah. the money. Yeah, it's great, great, yeah. And there's the kid uh, that gets killed and they talk about the bleeders and stuff. Yeah, he just we were talking sw- about that in one of the, the, yeah, and the, action, the action episodes. Yeah, where people don't have hit points. Yeah, because he just, they brutally murder this kid. They don't. They're very careful how they show it, but more importantly, they don't dwell on the point of view of of the dude that murders him. They dwell on the point of view of Harry, Harry Bosch, as he, as he comes upon the scene after. Because Harry was a street kid. Harry was a street kid. So he had that connection and the humanity of it. Yeah. And, it's, and the whole thing of that show is everybody matters or nobody does. Yep. And the guy that did the violence... Is no, clearly a psychopath, well, and no one matters to him. Yeah, he's a he's a piece of crap, and it's clear he's a piece of crap. And so, Evan, I I think that one of the biggest things we the biggest piece of advice we can give you here is it's all about tone. Um, look, yeah, depending on what you're writing, bro, like some of your stuff, you're gonna have to be, and I'm assuming that's why you're asking the question. Some of the stuff that you're portraying has to be. Super real. Like, look, I'm writing Werewolf Cop. Yeah. And my first book is about uh, a child abduction and murder ring. Okay. Dude, that's heavy stuff. It is. Now, another weapon, too, is the classic, and the same thing you do for sex in books if you don't oh, want to write that. Yeah, cut away. Cut away. Yeah. Um, well, pfft, the Star Wars prequel movies when Anakin kills all the little kids at the Jedi thing, they cut away. Yeah. They're clearly not going to show the guy who's been the hero for two and a half movies lightsabering a bunch of six-year-olds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So they cut away, but you know what happens. Yeah. Look, you can leave a, 
when it comes to many things, you can leave the horror into the imagination of the of the viewer or the the reader. Um, oftentimes, we we imagine things far far worse than they actually are. Yeah. Um, but look, it, it's okay. Like it, it's okay to to write about all this stuff. I, I was on a panel about horror the other day, uh, and they said, and the question was, how do you know if you've gone too far? And my my response was, there's no such thing. Um, that's just a, that's just a construct. Okay. The reality is how far are you comfortable going and how, how much of your audience are you willing to alienate or to shrink it down? Yeah. Okay. Um, I read, I read a lot of the grimdark stuff and the grimdark stuff tends to be very nihilistic and it tends to trend towards the, towards the, um, the very dark, sometimes the depraved, um, and 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 on occasion, to Evan's point, in my opinion, it goes a little too far sometimes. Yeah, well, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, or I yeah. mean, uh, I've read R. Scott Baker. I like R. Scott Baker. His, yeah. his his first trilogy. I I like that first trilogy quite a bit. But dude, it's it's messed up. Um, the 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 darker you go with this, without um framing it in certain ways like we talked about with the Bosch scenes uh the more you're going to limit your audience now if you're okay with that then then do it i don't care you you're right think about your audience like larry said if you're writing to them write to them um but you, i don't know i i just think that that this is more a matter of of an of a dial you're just turning yeah. it up and down depending on the scene. This was going to be nuanced. Depend. Mm-hmm. This is going to be very nuanced depending on audience. Yeah. So and I, personal comfort. I, I, if you if you are uncomfortable writing it, then you don't have to. Like if yeah yeah if, yeah, if, no if you one, don't no one's, no one's forcing you to write yeah that no crazy one's scene. forcing you to write that stuff that you don't want to write. Um. But anyway, to not glorify, I think my best advice is to is to humanize it. Yeah, definitely. Whether you know, generally through POV. Yeah. Okay. Last question. This is from uh, one of our supporters. His name is Daniel. Okay. And these questions are really good. Uh, well, one's one's really good and one is, uh, one's a joke, and, but we'll, we'll laugh about it here in a sec. So uh, the first question is, how do you write characters that are smarter than yourself? <laughs> and that's great because. That's a good question. Yeah. Ain't, ain't nobody accused me of being the smartest guy in the room. Okay, the biggest secret weapon to this is it's not that people necessarily like are smart. It's that they have the right answer at the right time. Mm-hmm. And it's how fast they come up with that answer. Yeah. Here's the beautiful thing about word processing. I have weeks to come up with like the strategic genius action that's going to be cool. Um, and also I can make sure it works, <laughs> you know, whereas they, they come up with it in one page. Right. Because they're smart. Or or in a paragraph, in an instant, right? Yeah. Um, so that's actually like the biggest cheat I do with Faye and Hard Magic. She's the smartest person in the whole series. Yeah. Is I write these crazy run-on sentences as she processes through stuff uh, and she comes to the right decisions. Yet later on in the series, I reveal that these giant paragraphs uh, are actually like 0.04 of a second. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> as, she's, as she's reasoning this stuff out. Uh, when I was writing Residue... Um, my cheat for this was, uh, Alex knew what everybody else was thinking. 
So she, yeah, she was the smartest. She wasn't technically the smartest person, but she knew what the smartest people were thinking and she could regurgitate it. Like, you know, and and that's the whole joke, right? Like if you're the teenager who can read minds, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, I'm going to cheat the the ever-living crap out of everything. Yep. So I don't have to deal with it. I actually found that refreshing. Um, So... Now, from a straight-up technical standpoint, dude, this is what subject matter experts are for. Yeah. It's like uh, me and Mike Cooper writing Dead Six. Stuff we didn't know, we had a special forces colonel, you know, that taught this stuff for a living. Uh, and and we talked about on a previous episode um, the concepts that you were bringing up about uh, uh, breaching uh, seafaring vehicles. Yeah, we didn't know that stuff. And so you specifically talked to a guy to make sure that you got it right. So our characters are smart because we had weeks to do research yeah. to make sure they were smart. Uh-huh. So don't don't be afraid to borrow from other people's intelligence. Yeah. Like especially if I like if I'm writing sci-fi and I need to have a character understand like orbital mechanics, I don't understand orbital mechanics at all. That is complicated stuff, but I know people who do that for a living. You know, and I can get just enough to make it sound like they know what they're doing. Yep. There's nothing worse though than having a character that's supposed to be smart. Because like the the author tells you they're smart, but that you never see them actually being smart. It's uh, okay. So the first Godzilla, the first new Godzilla movie. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I love the new Godzilla movies because they're so big, stupid fun. Yeah, and Godzilla looks cool. And Godzilla looks rad. Yeah, I mean, I think he's when he's, he's on. The I think screen. he's a little thick, so to speak. But T H I C C. Yeah, that's right. He's a thick boy. Uh, <laughs> thick scaly Sorry, boy. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> the the main character is is an EOD guy, which oh, yeah. to you and I is hilarious because we know actual EOD guys. And, yeah, and his big his big like he keeps talking through the whole thing how how smart he is and he's EOD and he knows and da 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 da. da. And his claim to fame is he set it on fire. <laughs> Who only a genius would be able only to think a genius can think of setting something on fire. A, a fire hurts living things. Whoa, um, that's an example of the negative, right? He, he keeps telling you, and everyone keeps saying how smart he is because he's EOD. Because real EOD dudes, oh, yeah, they're real freaking smart. They're smart dudes. They they're have real freaking smart. Yeah, oh yeah, their job is complicated. Um, but this guy, like, it, it, it was just, it just didn't work that way. It was right? cheesy. They wasted Brian Cranston in that too. Oh yeah. Um. Okay. Hopefully that answered your question, Daniel. Here's your here's your second question. You ready for this, Larry? Okay. <laughs> and he starts this by saying, and, and he starts this question by saying, no bias. Why is the Marine Corps the best branch of the military? No bias. <laughs> Dude, we are two civilian former military contractors. We are I am not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. I don't know. Maybe in a crayon eating contest. Oh, <laughs> I'm here all week. Oh my um, gosh! I was just on a podcast with two uh, two Marines. Oh, uh, that's right. You, yeah, you were on Peter Nealon's yeah, thing, right? Cupola Presto and Peter Nealon. Yeah, and it was funny because both of them were like, "Yeah, we missed out on the crayon thing." Like our service just before the crayon thing became like a thing. <laughs> so everybody keeps sending me like crayon memes. Like I don't know, dude. <laughs> my uh, no, in all serious, my my uncle was career Marine, um, and so. Between that and 
and I mean, gosh, you and I, we've known everyone from every branch of the military at some point or another, and we've worked with every branch Our of the Our office military. was like literally like the tour, like you go down, it was, it was like, you remember you go down the hall? Yeah. And it was like Air Force, Navy, uh, Army, Marine, Air Force, Navy, Navy, Yeah, we had Army, everyone. Marine, Navy, you know? Um, <laughs> and... And of course, they all had their jokes that they were telling each other, and us cake-eating civilians. We, we just, kept we kept our mouth shut yeah, during just, uh, during those exchanges. We just we just we just looked at them and nodded and said, "Thank you for your service." Uh, Mostly work with Air Force and Army. Was, was, like, that I, was I, the vast majority. Yeah, I didn't do I didn't do very much career-wise with Navy or Marines. I ended up after you left. I did. We had some contracts with the Navy. Um, they were they're fine. We had Navy guys in our office. Yeah, yeah. In and fact, we had the guy who literally wrote the book on on uh, combat on, search and rescue. On combat search and rescue. For yeah, the remember because we were talking to him when we interviewed him for the job. He's like, yeah, "What's your writing experience?" He's like, "Well, I wrote the book on combat search and rescue." And we're like, oh, yeah, that's like, oh, funny. that's a great phrase." He's like, "No, no, really, here it is." No, so like literally, then when he was moving into the office, he's like unpacking his boxes and he gets out the giant book of like combat search and rescue, and it's like literally, he wrote it, and we're yeah. like, oh, "Oh, yeah, you were being serious." I thought you were joking. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out, no. <laughs> All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your questions and all you supporters. Thank you so much. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I don't know about you, dude, but I'm, I'm always, I'm always kind of gee whizzed at the questions that come in. There's some good ones tonight. Every really time nice. I, I, every time that we get, we, we get like the batch of questions in and I think, I think, man, I don't know. These are great questions. I don't know if, I don't know if we're going to get any better ones than this. Yeah, no, keep coming and, guys. And they these just keep good. coming. They're awesome stuff. All right, everybody. That's all we got for you today. Thank you so much again. Um, you supporters are awesome. Thank you for sending in these questions. Um, this is the Writer Dojo. Larry Curry and I. We'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. <laughs> Only a genius would be able Only to think of that. Only a genius could think of setting something on fire.